We are back, and this is the official Sasta podcast with me, Harry Stebbings, and you can see all things from us behind the scenes here on Instagram at hstebbings1996 with two Bs. However, to our episode today, and I'm super excited to welcome the incredible rising star founder of the enterprise world in the form of Ali Janik, founder and CEO at Mapistry, the startup that makes environmental compliance simple. As for Ali, prior to founding Mapistry, she started her career in MIT's Lincoln Lab before joining IQ Engines, acquired by Yahoo ultimately. Post-acquisition, Ali integrated the technology built at IQ Engines into Flickr Search. And I do also want to say a huge thank you to the wonderful Jason Lemkin at Sasta for providing both some fantastic question suggestions today and also the original intro to Ali. Jason, huge thanks for that. But before we dive into the show today, finding a quiet space for a phone call or video conference has always been a challenge. Conference rooms are always taken, so I found myself taking calls in the hallway, the bathroom, the corridor, you name it. That's why I was so excited to discover Room. Room helps businesses build a better workplace with thoughtful, sustainable products. Their mobile soundproof phone booth helps you tune out the noise of the open office. It's soundproofed using recycled plastic bottles and fully ventilated to keep you cool, even if office conversation gets heated. It ships flat and is easy to move around and assemble. And actually, you and a team member can assemble it on site in under an hour. I have to admit, I've personally used the room booth in our office and having a shared personal space really transformed the way we work and just feel about our office. Plus, the booth itself is beautifully designed and blends in well with our interior. With Room, you can also create a quiet space for phone calls, video conferences, and focused work at a fraction of the cost of building a separate conference room. That's why companies like Google, Nike, NASA, and Salesforce have already chosen Room to build a better workplace. And Room offers free shipping and the best price on the market. And as a special offer to our listeners, we're partnering with Room to give you a 100-day risk-free trial. Go to room.com slash sasta to learn more. That's room.com forward slash sasta. And speaking of products I love there with Room, I've always been blown away by Core. AI. It's the number one conversational intelligence platform, allowing you to unlock hidden insights from customer conversations that really close deals. So whether you want to increase quota attainment, coach and ramp new reps more effectively, or clone winning talk tracks, head over to Chorus.ai to join the likes of GitLab, Amplitude, AdRoll, and more amazing companies already loving and using Chorus. And every week we talk briefly to a WePay partner in a mini-series to get their best advice on achieving success. This time we'll hear from Justin Goodhue, founder and CEO at Trellis. Trellis is an event management platform for charities and non-profits. Trellis enables event organizers to easily build beautiful event and fundraising pages to sell tickets, collect donations, and automate their workflows. Hi, Harry. In the SaaS world, being good at something just isn't good enough. You have to be great. Be great at one thing. One thing that you can really focus on and be better at than anyone else. Because to be great at one thing and better at one thing than anyone else in the world is really hard to do. So focus on that and the rest of it. Just follow those best practices and industry standards and you'll win. Couldn't agree with you more there, Justin. And you can also find growth with the combination of WePay and Chase, which means payments you can bank on. To find out how you can add benefits like Chase Pay and more to your payment solution, visit WePay.com forward slash Harry. That's WePay.com forward slash Harry. However, you've heard quite enough from me. So now I'm very, very excited to hand over to Ali Janik, founder and CEO at Mapistry. Good. That's perfect. Okay, I think we're warmed up. Ali, it is absolutely fantastic to have you on the show today. I've heard so many great things from the main man, Jason Lemkin. So thank you so much for joining me today, Ali. Yeah, I'm thrilled to be here. I would love to kick off this day with a little bit about you. So tell me, how did you make your way into the wonderful world of SaaS first? And then did you always dream of changing the world of environmental compliance? And what was that kind of founding moment with Mapistry? Yeah, I did. I did not always dream of doing a company, you know, related to environmental compliance, but I did always want to be a programmer. I think when I look back, you 
know, even I looked at the sixth grade yearbook that my friend had saved recently. And there was a line about like, what do you want to be when you grow up? And most kids are saying like an astronaut or something like that. And I said like computer programmer or software engineer or something like that. (laughs) So I always knew I wanted to go to school and major in computer science and build products. Or maybe I guess I didn't really know what I would do with the programming, but I thought it sounded cool. And I didn't really get an inkling though, that I wanted to be an entrepreneur or start a company until much later. I was in grad school and kind of not very happy with doing research. And I felt like I was writing these papers that no one reads, which is is not totally accurate, but it's different than building products. So I ended up quitting my PhD program and joining a startup. And that's where I really caught the startup bug. And I loved working there. I was maybe the 10th employee and it was a SaaS company, but we ended up getting acquired by Yahoo. I'm really for the tech, not for the business. So I lost that connection to the business side of it when we joined Yahoo. And I just really didn't want to be at a big company. And so I didn't last there very long. And I pretty quickly was sort of searching around for my next thing. And I ended up interviewing lots of potential users for all sorts of different kinds of products that I was excited about. And what I realized was that if I was going to commit, you know, 10 plus years of my life to something, I realized for me, it had to be a B2B product. I felt like I wouldn't be able to commit myself to a consumer product for that long. And I ended up like quizzing my husband about the problems he was having at work that he thought could be solved with tech. He's an environmental and civil engineer. And that was the seed for what Mapstry is today. And I ended up quitting Yahoo and starting Mapstry and eventually convincing him to join me to help me build it. And, and that's sort of where things got started. I mean, I absolutely love that as a founding story. And it's, it's great that he's on the team now too. I do have to also, and this is totally off schedule and I'm sorry for this, but you've worked at a startup that was acquired. You then obviously joined Yahoo for a brief period and, and didn't really feel that the big company person. And then you started your own company. I'm intrigued. What would you advise graduates coming into the workforce today who are debating between those three options of joining a big incumbent, starting a startup or joining a startup? What would you advise them? I think that if you have a sense that at some point you would like to start your own company, joining a startup, like a very early startup is a huge training ground to learn how to do that. And statistically speaking, if you join a super early startup, they're going to fail, but you'll still learn a lot from that failure, even if they don't succeed. And if they do succeed, you'll learn even more and you might stick around. We just hired someone who was at Carter from early days and for five years. And so he learned so much from that experience. I was only at this startup for a year before I got acquired, but I still learned a lot. I I think there's probably tons you can learn by joining a big company too, but it's very different. And you get exposed to so much at a startup if you want to be. You know, I was hired as a programmer, as a software engineer, but you know, I sat next to the CEO. And if I wanted to be in a meeting that wasn't really something I was going to be invited to, like technically, I just said, hey, I'm opinionated about this. I want to join the meeting. And that was fine. Can't do that at a big company. No, I'm totally with you. I think it's uh, it's very special to be on the front lines and have the flexibility to do that. But I, I do want to start today on a topic that's at the forefront of all early stage SaaS founders' minds and it's the element of really sales hiring. And I know you've had a couple of iterations on the right approach here. And so I do want to kind of double click on this. From the iterations, what were some of the biggest maybe mistakes that you made in the sales hiring to start with? Yeah, this has been one of our biggest challenges for the past, well, for years actually, figuring out who to hire on the sales team and how to train them. Because Mapistry is a very complex sale. We sell to like big companies. So it's sort of your typical 
single big enterprise sale, but it's also complex because we sell to people who have often never purchased software before and we start talking to the environmental department, but we have to bring in operations. So it's just, it just becomes very complex. And as a salesperson, you have to talk pretty intelligently about the domain because otherwise people kind of just don't want to talk to you. So when we first started hiring for sales, what we thought we wanted was people that were like Ryan, my husband and co-founder, because he was doing most of the sales. And so he has all this domain experience and he leans really heavily on that when he's having conversations. He has very technical conversations with potential customers. And so we thought we should replicate that. But what we learned was that it's really hard to hire someone who has some domain experience and try to figure out in an interview if they have the aptitude for sales and then teach them how to sell. Maybe if it was a more transactional sale, it might've worked a little better, but like to get them from like basically never selling before to figuring out how to do this really complex sale is a really big lift. And Ryan figured it out, but it took him years. So for us to try to teach other people to do that in you know the course of a month or two turned out to be really, really tough. So we learned that that was not the right thing to do. Don't try to replicate the founder, at least for us. And then the other thing was just sort of like narrowing in on there's so many things on your wish list when you're hiring anyone, but like what for us were the most important things. And one interesting one that we figured out was that we want to hire people that are really smart for the sales team. And I think in talking to other founders and other, you know, experienced entrepreneurs, that's not always important factor on the sales team. Like not that you want to hire a bunch of dummies, but it's not usually the case that you want someone who's like unusually smart. But for us, we need people to onboard and quickly be able to talk intelligently about this space that they knew nothing about, you know, before they started working for Baptistry. And you, you got to have to have a few extra IQ points to be able to do that. Can I ask, it's, it is a very complex product. And so when you do ingest someone new into the sales team and they don't have the domain experience that maybe you or your husband have, can I ask, what does that onboarding process look like? And how do you get them up to speed on such a complex industry? in trying to be as short a time as possible. Yeah, I mean, we've iterated on a lot. It helps that we have, as part of our team and as part of our offering to customers, we do offer some services. So we have a lot of people on the team who are really knowledgeable. We also, one of the products that we offer is e-learning. So we have all these courses that we sell to customers. So one of the first things that almost anyone we hire does is they take those courses. And then one of the things we're going to start experimenting with soon that I'm excited about is that the first week of a sales hire, they're going to spend a bunch of time with our CS team and do onboarding. And by doing that onboarding, they'll learn a lot. And they also spend a lot of time with other people on the sales team. They do a lot of shadowing. I mean, that's super important. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. We mentioned kind of the complex sale and the type of businesses that you do sell to. In terms of rep payback period, how do you think about rep payback period, given that actually, you know, in many cases for these sales, it can be a nine to 12 month process in terms of the sale itself? Yeah, I think that we're still learning on that. I think that it is a long sales cycle. We can't expect people to be, you know, selling at quota in, you know, a few months. It's just unrealistic. But I think for both the salesperson and for us, it's important to have milestones so that they feel like they're being successful and that they understand that they are making progress. Because if it takes six months to close a deal and you're on month four or five and you've only closed a few deals or that can be really demoralizing, not just for the salesperson. And for us, it's harder to know if they're succeeding. But we end up having people pitch in and help out with other deals so that they can uh, that they can get a sense of that. And the other thing that we're going to start doing, um, and what we've started to do, is that instead of having 
individual AEs and SDRs, kind of the more typical setup for a sales team that you see is we're going to do a pod structure where we're going to have three people in a pod. They're all going to be have a title of AE and there's not going to be a designated SDR. And they're really going to, they're going to have a team goal and they're not going to be comped on individual quota. Instead, they're going to be comped on their team goal so that if you're the first person, you're the new person, you're maybe, you know, a couple years out of school and you're that new person on the pod, you get to learn from everyone else in the pod, the two other people in the pod as you ramp up, and then you can be helping them close deals. And since you're getting comped on the team, if you feel like you're helping them, then you're being successful from the beginning. Can I ask, and sorry, this is all so off schedule, but it's too interesting. Uh, you mentioned <laughs> that kind of the, the team and the collective element, which I love. Are you a little bit concerned that if there's one underperformer, the two that are maybe performing will feel like they're carrying the other and the other's actually financially benefiting from their excellence and their lack of excellence on the poor performance side? Yeah, for sure. I mean, we definitely have talked about this and I think that what remains to be seen, you know, if we have, a, we're not big enough to really sort of have experienced this in full. But I think that my hope is that with just three people on the team, if there's one person that's underperforming, it's going to be really obvious. And if we have a good management structure around those teams, that that poor performer will become obvious pretty quickly. But I mean, it is something I'm concerned about and we'll keep an eye on as we grow. I think if we were to put like, you know, six salespeople together, it'd be way easier for someone to hide and for an underperformer to not be obvious. But we're also going to have, everyone's going to be comped on team goals, but they are going to have individual goals as well. Got you. Okay, that makes total sense. So there is real personal accountability. I, I do want to. I, I do want to ask it because also, and, and sorry, but you said about the services revenue element. Now, obviously, I'm a VC. I also speak to many VCs. If I know one thing, it's that VCs tend to puke when they hear the term services mm. revenue. I always actually disagree with it. So, but taking my view out of it, how would you respond to VCs that puke on services revenue? Are they right to? And how do you think about that? Yeah, I've really evolved on this. You know, a couple of years ago when we were raising seed round, I had some. Slides in my deck talking about how our recurring revenue was going to go up, you know, like the hockey stick kind of chart, and then our services revenue was going to you know, stay flat or something. And what I realized, though, is that having that services revenue creates incredibly close relationships with our customers. Not all of them want to take advantage of it, but when they do, it's basically coming from a place of, hey, we want Mapistry to solve our problem. And sometimes software isn't enough, especially for us, which we're in a space where we operate in the real world. If somebody's using our software and they identify they have an environmental problem at their site, the solution is often not a software solution. It might be a treatment system. And if they have to go to someone else to solve that problem, it's not a complete solution. Mapstry is not offering a complete solution. So they end up creating these super close relationships with our team. They are much, much less likely to churn. And we figured out a way to make the services side of things not a detriment to the team. The services team is highly profitable and so that's great. It's not, it's certainly not a, a drain on our resources. They are, at times they have propped up the team in terms of the revenue that they're bringing in. So that also helps too. Listen, I'm totally with you and it's music to my ears. I think it's one thing that actually really pisses me off often with uh, <laughs> on startups. But, so totally with you there. You spoke a little bit about the customers you target, but I do want to kind of narrow in on this focus because when we chatted before, you said to me about the focus you apply today to customer profile in market. So how do you think about the importance of focus applied to maybe customer segment and profile? profile today. Yeah, we've 
really evolved on this as well, because I think when we started, we felt like in comparison with other software companies in our space, we were pretty focused. So we're within this bigger environmental health and safety software space. And so most of the companies we compete with, they do not just environmental, but health and safety, risk, all sorts of huge swath of things. And they do it for any industry. And so we felt like, okay, if we're just going to focus on environmental, that's enough focus. Um, And we don't want to make our TAM too small and make us not fundable and not able to grow quickly. But what we realized was that if we want to offer a product that is really able to work as out of the box as possible, which is what we strive for and what is one of our huge differentiators, then we have to narrow in our focus. So we currently have three industries that we're focusing on. And we're only focusing on those companies that are quite big in those industries. And by doing that, we can make a product that really is tailored to those industries. That doesn't mean that that has to be our focus forever. A plan right now is that's our 2020 focus. And maybe at the end of 2020, we'll decide that you know there's still more room in the, a lot more room in the market to grow. And we're going to keep doing that for another year. Or maybe we'll decide to add more segments. We don't have to be afraid of focus being constraining us because it's not a commitment forever. I totally agree. And it actually very much reminds me of Rahul at Superhuman's discussion on how to find product market fit and really constraining how you view the ideal user of your product. So totally aligned there. I guess my question is when we think about tailoring and dazzling that customer with the product experience that they have, how do you measure customer satisfaction, the dazzling of them with the product? Is it retention? Is it NPS? How do you measure that internally? Yeah, we do. We use NPS pretty heavily. We use Pendo to have in-app NPS scores or NPS quizzes. And then we also use churn and retention. Like those are super important to us. But I do think there's a caveat there. I mean, we have very low churn, but even when the customers that have churned, I really pay attention to who's churning. So we have a high enough price point that we don't have thousands of customers. And so I notice every single customer that churns. And the ones that I really pay attention to and care about the most are if a customer is churning that's really in that area that we're focusing on. Because we have customers that we signed up like two, three years ago, and the product has not evolved to better suit them because we haven't been focusing on that industry. We've better figured out what we want to focus on. You know, we have customers that are little wineries and at the time seemed great. They're going to pay us. Fantastic. But now it's like, we're not, that's not our focus. So it's understandable that they might not be as happy with Mapistry as some of our other customers. And so I'm not going to like over-index on that small customer churning. I'm going to be much more concerned about the big customer that really fits into our focus right now. If they churned, which luckily they, they aren't, but if they churned, I, that would be really concerning. Yeah, no, I'm totally with you in terms of kind of excluding that that isn't in the core target zone. I, I do want to ask, so you mentioned that you don't want to narrow it too much that it's a challenge with fundraising. I'm sure VCs do also in terms of being a very, very niche TAM and market size question. How do you respond to the questions that I'm sure the VCs do ask? So one of the things that's challenging for us is that we don't have market research that we can rely on to show investors what our TAM is or, or what the market looks like. There's a little bit of research, but I actually don't really agree with it because I think that it's it's evaluating the size of the market today. And most of the customers we talk to aren't using software to solve the problems we're helping them with. So it's kind of irrelevant what the size of the market is today. So I, I try to do a bottom-up analysis and I look at like the number of the 
industrial facilities in the country of a certain size and things like that. And I think that as we're getting more focused on specific industries, my story is not about the size of the TAM for those industries. It's a much bigger story. And it's about today we're focused on this segment of this bigger market. But the ultimate goal is not that we focus on just these three target industries, but that any big industrial company would be a customer. Absolutely. And when we talk about those companies and and how one engages with them, often one engages with them at events. And events is a really interesting area where you said earlier that before the, the interview started that you've been really doing events for three years. And it's somewhere where actually Jason also said you've had incredible success. So I do want to touch on this. So starting from the beginning, why did you start doing events? And what did that own event discovery journey look like? Yeah, so we started by doing typical events where we would go and like sponsor a booth and attend the event. And we found that the ROI on these events was very low. For us, at least, we found that there were very few events that we could attend where the audience was who we wanted to talk to. You know, we'd go to events where most of the audience was city and regulators and consultants, and we don't sell to any of those people. So on the face, it looks like it's the right event because they're talking about environmental compliance. But in reality, the people who attend are not the people we want to talk to. Or we'd go to events where, you know, you'd have a range of titles and some people are focused on environmental, sure, but there's also all these people focused on health and safety. And maybe they're not there because they want to do software because it's not a software event. And so maybe they're just not in the space to purchase software. It's not what they're there to do. And so we just weren't having a lot of luck. And it's expensive. You have to pay for a booth. You have to pay to fly people out, hotels. It just gets pretty darn expensive. So we had another company who was in the WeWork with us and they said to us, hey, we host our own conference. It's surprisingly affordable and to do like, you know, a hundred person event and you can invite who you want to talk to and it can be half customers and half leads and you can make it an educational event, not, you know, not sort of a how to use mapistry event, but, you know, learn about environmental compliance and use that as a way of generating leads and creating closer relationships with your customers at the same time. I mean, I think it's a perfect solution and I look forward to going to a mapistry event if you'll have me or to one of them. But I, <laughs> sure. You might I, not you might not understand what's going on, but <laughs> don't worry, the English accent carries me a long way. Don't worry about it. <laughs> I, I do have to ask it because there's a lot of startups that think about events now and go, huh, is this something that actually we should be doing as a strategy? What would your advice be to them on whether they should or shouldn't really engage and go deep with the doing their own event strategy? I think for me, the key was that there were not spaces where our customers were congregating. And so it made sense to us to put on an event where we could put the agenda together to be really educational and valuable to our potential customers and that they would want to attend. So if you were in a space where there's already a lot of really high quality events, it might be hard to get a foothold. I could see that as being the case. And then, you know, there's some things that you have to consider, like, do you have a good enough network to put together a really great speaker panel. My co-founder, Ryan, is really good at that. So if you can't put together a great speaker lineup, you're not going to have a strong event and you're not going to get the people you want to attend to attend. And it does cost a little bit of money and we offset it by having some sponsors, but it but it is a little bit of investment. I think the first year we probably spent like $10,000 on it. Wow. Okay. I mean, that's super interesting. So I thought it'd be more like $100,000. So I mean, I am interested in perfect segue there because I was going to ask, like, how do you advise founders and how do you think about like resource allocation and budget when it comes to events. 
So I think like, don't forget about all the ancillary costs. Now we try to do a really good job about recording every single little cost. So, you know, whether it's the hotels for a couple of our team members that are remote that have to come to Berkeley for the event or the printing that we do for the flyers, all those little things. So, and do the same when you're attending an event, like don't forget about you know the food that you bought or the flight that you had to take or all the hotel budget. And so compare those two. And then I think that there's a lot of ways you can save some money on an event. Like we have sponsors the first couple of years, we just did some lawyers that sponsored, which are really relevant to our customer segment. And they don't want to have like a bunch of in your face marketing. So it was great. We were able, we've always been able to have sponsors who are people that we'd like to invite to speak anyways. So they kind of pay us to come speak, but we would kind of invite them to speak for free anyways. So that is a really good way of funding the event. Well, I'm so pleased that this conversation is just between us and they haven't heard that you would have them speak anyway. Uh, but uh, I do want to ask it in terms of like ROI from the event, how do you measure that? Is that like converted sales? Is that follow-up conversations? How do you determine the success? Yeah, I mean, we're definitely tracking in Salesforce, converted sales, also tracking retention for customers that attend, upsells for customers too. And then there's other ways you can get ROI. Like we've always had videographer attend and then we schedule a bunch of interviews with customers at the event. So we get these really high quality customer testimonials that you really wouldn't be able to do otherwise because what are you going to do go visit a single customer and bring a videographer that would be incredibly expensive especially considering the fact that only 50 percent of the interviews end up being worthy of putting on the website and so that's a great way of getting like additional roi out of the event but mostly it's sales that are generated from the event got you no absolutely important to track everything i do want to move to the final element though and it's actually kind of a little bit self-reflective really on your learnings and development in the scaling of ceo ship so how have you seen yourself change and evolve as a leader and CEO over the last few years? I mean, so much. I've learned so much. But I think one of the things I've put a lot of thought into is what are the things that I should hand off to someone else? And what are the things that I should continue to own? I've never been the person that is a micromanager. So I think some, some people probably struggle with this in, the, in that they don't want to hand things off. Or when they do, they keep micromanaging people. But I think that I've had this tendency in the past to when I'm not doing something as well as I'd like to, because I don't have the time, I try to hand that off to someone else. But I haven't always reflected on, is this something that I am uniquely good at? Is this something that I'm really, really good at and I shouldn't be handing off? Maybe the things that I should be handing off are all the like stupid accounting things that I'm doing. <laughs> all the stuff that goes around with running a business. Those are the things I should make, the, I should prioritize handing off. Even though they seem like small little things, they all add up. And I shouldn't hand off the details of figuring out what we're going to build because that's the thing that I'm really good at. I can hand off managing the timeline of the product because that's not the thing that brings me as much joy and as much energy. And other people can do it just as well, if not better. But it's hard to figure that out. It's hard to figure out how you can arm your team to be as successful as you want them to be, but without like overwhelming them, without giving them too much. Do you agree with the common notion that as CEO, your role changes every six months? Oh yeah, for sure. That's one of the hardest parts. It's so challenging. No, I love it. Absolutely. Well, listen, Ali, I do want to dive into the, my favorite, which is the quick fire round. So Ali's 60 seconds faster. Are you ready to rock and roll? Yep. Okay. So what motto or quote do you most frequently revert back to? I think one of the things I like to think about is Jim Collins' book, Good to Great. He, you know, There's a bunch of awesome stuff in that book. But one of the things I love is he talks about the fact that you should figure out what your company can be the best in the world at and focus on that. He 
has lots of awesome examples, but that's something that I often think about, you know, let's not try to copy what someone else is doing or try to add this thing to our product that we don't totally understand. Let's figure out what we can be the best at. What's the most challenging element of your role with Mapistry today, do you think? Well, sort of back to what you said, it's constantly changing. (laughs) But I think right now, the most challenging thing is that we are growing and I figuring out how to grow the team most effectively, how to empower people and when to hold on to things. And then the other challenging part is just that, you know, we're getting closer to a point where we're going to probably want to start fundraising. So when do we do that? And there's a lot of thought about that. You know, how do we tell a good story to potential investors? And gearing up for that is a big thing on my mind right now. What do you do when shit hits the fan? How do you deal with it? I think the first thing is just to take like a big breath. And I think that I definitely get that like sort of tightness in my chest when something bad happens and that can help. And then I think just to remind myself that things have gone poorly in the past and we've muddled through it. We've persevered. We've figured it out. In 2015, we had to lay off our whole team and we've gotten to where we are today, even though that was in our past. So I think that feeling that like we can figure it out, we've been there before, really helps. And then I got a dog a year ago. So going to the dog park and snuggling with her is also super helpful. (laughs) (laughs) What would you most like to change in the world of tech in Silicon Valley? Oh, I mean, probably something around diversity would be fantastic. (laughs) (laughs) We have five values at Mapistry and the first one on our list is diversity. I think that, you know, there's so often these little things I think about where I wonder, is that because I'm a woman? And you never, well, maybe not never, but you almost never know. And I just would love if that wasn't the case. I would love if when I was hiring for sales roles or tech roles, if I was seeing a really diverse group of people, not just men and women, but racially, socioeconomically, where people come from, I think that diversity yields much better and more productive teams and much better products. Our customers come from a huge diverse background. So we should, if we have diversity, we'll build better products for them as well. Can I ask, and this is a personal one, you don't have to answer, but in terms of like asking yourself that question, like would that have happened if I was a man? Where do you think that's most common? Is that in sales? Is that in hiring? Is that in fundraising where do you find that most often i think it's mostly when i'm interacting with people outside of our team like i don't feel that in the office on a day-to-day basis so yeah like in sales and fundraising and if i'm at some sort of networking event those are the kind of places where i I think that but it's hard because it's totally unproductive there's nothing you can really do about it in the moment so it's not productive to be like focusing on that it just brings you down but it can be demoralizing i do want to finish what do you know now that you wish you'd known at the beginning of your journey with mapistry So many things. (laughs) I think that there is something to be said for prioritizing myself and prioritizing health and well-being so that we can continue on because Mapstry has been a long journey and it has not always been easy. And so, you know, there's everything from making sure you're exercising to eat right to making sure you spend time with friends. I recently started working with an executive coach, which has been absolutely fantastic. I highly recommend. It's kind of a mix between mentorship and therapy and it's awesome. So I think there have been times where I haven't as been as confident in my abilities. And usually that has just been a detriment to the company. And in the end, I realized that if I had confidence in myself, I probably could have done a great job. And that just sort of means that we might not have gotten to some milestone as quickly as we would have otherwise. And listen, Ali, as I said to you before, I had so many great things from Jason. I absolutely love this. I'm sorry for going off schedule so much. That's okay. No worries. 
Absolutely loved having Ali on the show there and such exciting times ahead for her and Mapistry. And if you'd like to see more from Ali, you can find her on Twitter at Ali Janik. Likewise, it'd be great to welcome you behind the scenes here. You can do that on Instagram at hstebbings1996 with two Bs. But before we leave you today, finding a quiet space for a phone call or video conference has always been a challenge. Conference rooms are always taken, so I found myself taking calls in the hallway, the bathroom, the corridor, you name it. That's why I was so excited to discover Room. Room helps businesses build a better workplace with thoughtful, sustainable products. Their mobile soundproof phone booth helps you tune out the noise of the open office. It's soundproofed using recycled plastic bottles and fully ventilated to keep you cool, even if office conversation gets heated. It ships flat and is easy to move around and assemble, and actually you and a team member can assemble it on site in under an hour. I have to admit, I've personally used the room booth in our office, and having a shared personal space really transformed the way we work and just feel about our office. Plus, the booth itself is beautifully designed and blends in well with our interior. With Room, you can also create a quiet space for phone calls, video conferences, and focused work at a fraction of the cost of building a separate conference room. That's why companies like Google, Nike, NASA, and Salesforce have already chosen Room to build a better workplace. And Room offers free shipping and the best price on the market. And as a special offer to our listeners, we're partnering with Room to give you a 100-day risk-free trial. Go to room.com slash sasta to learn more. That's room.com forward slash sasta. And speaking of products I love there with Room, I've always been blown away by Chorus.ai. It's the number one conversational intelligence platform, allowing you to unlock hidden insights from customer conversations that really close deals. So whether you want to increase quota attainment, coach and ramp new reps more effectively, or clone winning talk tracks, head over to Chorus.ai to join the likes of GitLab, Amplitude, AdRoll, and more amazing companies already loving and using Chorus. And every week we talk briefly to a WePay partner in a mini-series to get their best advice on achieving success. This time we'll hear from Justin Goodhue, founder and CEO at Trellis. Trellis is an event management platform for charities and non-profits. Trellis enables event organizers to easily build beautiful event and fundraising pages to sell tickets, collect donations, and automate their workflows. As always, I so appreciate all your support and I can't wait to bring you another fantastic episode next week.